You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, we're going to be talking about caseworkers today. And it sounds like somebody who's just sitting in, a, in an office with a, you know, with a pencil or a computer and, and shuffling papers around. It's obviously much more than that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your caseworkers do and some of um, the challenges that confront them. So when a person re-enters society to rebuild their life for good, particularly at the beginning, the challenges are almost insurmountable. And that includes um, finding a place to live with challenges, finding solid employment, um, employers unwilling to hire them with a criminal record, uh, lack of internet skills or lack of internet, a gap in the work experience, sometimes basic literacy skills as well, and a very deep-seated ostracism from the community. Everybody wants them to succeed, there's no question, but few people are willing to give them the breaks they need. But our clients do rebuild their lives for good. And one of the keys to those success is the support we provide. And that support on the front lines is done by our caseworkers. They help our clients re-enter, um, find um, health insurance, uh, get the documents they need, um, find employment, find housing. They do crisis work with people who are homeless or addiction or have mental health issues. They are the people that save lives. So it's, you know, just a couple of the things that you said there, uh, what's one of the last things you said is health insurance. And I, it's, 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 you know, this is one of the major uh, issues of American life. It's uh, was considered the, uh, the touchstone of the Obama years that they were able to create a national, something like a national health insurance policy situation. But you're saying that of the um, many of our individuals who are returning from incarcerations from prisons that they've they actually do not they're they're not they they don't have health insurance Um, well not originally when they're in prison the health the health system is horrific if people would understand i could tell you some stories how horrific it is and often they're taken out with no real exit strategy maybe they've taken they need medications for mental health issues or physical issues in prison but when they're thrown out they don't have health insurance. Sometimes they're told just to go to emergency so they don't have a gap in some of their medications or, or support. So it would seem, you know, especially with the, you know, the trillions of dollars that are being thrown into the economy <laughs> to deflate the economy now, that that might be something that to, to push for, that, that incarcerated persons, when there should be like a bridge period where there should be that at least what they had in prison, but perhaps a lot more as they are trying to find things. Uh, um, uh, Otherwise, one of the main arguments, I think, in in healthcare that is used is that we need to pay for for people. There needs to be, in a way, a tax on the wealthiest or others to pay for this, because if we don't have that type of uh, health insurance uh, umbrella or, or, or net to help people, there's going to be so many people without insurance that they're going to overwhelm the the health industry and the costs will anyway affect us. So the idea is that if the government gets involved now, you won't have these crises later. It would seem that this is a crisis already happening and it, it's, it's a limited amount of people. So it would seem right. that, that it would, I, I haven't, I've never heard about uh, you know, that suggestion but I think based on what you're saying, I think that would make sense to, to push for that, um, to give people who are coming out of prison a certain grace period uh, and, and, and whatever it is, six months, eight months, 10 months, or at least this way, they're not, um, they're not devolving and, 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 and their illness is not going to uh, cripple them in a way that they can't find anything. I think another thing that I want to just mention about what you've said, I don't know if our listeners are aware because they're probably listening to us on their iPhones and other things. Many of the people that are uh, leaving prisons are leaving after a very long time where they had no access and they sort of, the internet revolution in a way passed them by. 
And um, also, as we all know from our kids and from ourselves, practice is what you need. If you've been in a prison where you haven't had access to those materials, so you're rusty or completely ignorant about how they work. So right. while, while everybody else so knows. Yeah. Here, so here you want people to find employment, but um, they don't have internet skills. Sometimes they're not allowed internet. They, employers are unwilling to hire them. They lack basic technical skills and software um, or don't know how to navigate the internet. They don't have recent work experiences. They have gap in their um, in their uh, resumes and they're stressed. They're stressed as they adapt from, from incarceration to society. And then they face continual prejudice and ostracism. And the people that save them in that transition period and get them the medical help they need are the caseworkers. So caseworkers, right? The caseworkers that you're referring to are not caseworkers that are that the government assigns to them. And we're talking, we're going to talk later about the parole officers, but but I would assume that there is also someone without such a gaudy title as parole officer, but is still knows what's going on, is involved with them. And let's say if a person is in a halfway house, you're, you, what, what you're telling us is that those people aren't really involved in this essential way. The, the, the people who work in the halfway houses or technically are the ones guiding them are really not guiding them or helping them. Is, is that, would that be correct? Um, I'm saying that's not entirely correct. The halfway houses do try to help. Parole officers try to help. And they all have things that they try to do. Parole officers, for example, want their people to find work. They need to meet the mandated criteria. And that's what they're there for. But they have a lot of cases. Some of them are more empathetic than others. Um, the halfway houses vary. Some are better than others. Um, some are a business out in the south side, right? And they have few resources. So, so, so your our case, case workers make a difference. Uh, they so make they, that difference. So they, they fill the gaps and sometimes I guess are even uh, would have to use inventiveness to, to do something more than than what yeah. say the, the the government employee. So I know that you've uh, you, I know that you're one of you've brought uh, and you, you've told me that this is uh, one of your stars, your, your caseworker that you have here with us. So why don't we um, uh, why don't you we briefly introduce Dana and uh, our caseworker yeah. that is here and uh, and we, we can begin a conversation with her. So we hired Dana probably I think in January. And Dana has a few things. One is she understands the system. She has compassion for the people. She understands the legal system. And, um, and really, she's a hard worker. She knows how to find things, how to work within the system, how to make relationships with the parole and probation agents. And, and really, I think we've done miracles. We have saved lives. And, and Jewish lives and other lives. And that is the key to stopping recidivism. Okay, so Dana, you know, that, I don't know if I could ever follow such an intro. Uh, and uh, I know you're blushing there, but um, I, I, let's ask you, Dana, what drives you to be so given over to, you know, it's gotta be frustrating. I know that um, uh, Rebbe Tsenshaiman is singing your, your successes, but it's gotta be a frustrating work. What drives you to be so given over to that? Well, she's too kind, but um, I, for me, I think the only truly frustrating thing is like an, a seemingly never ending lack of time to get everything done. Some crisis clients come to me with emergency based needs at number and the could be in the dozens uh, from no identification, no shoes on their feet, no place to, I mean, a, a hundred things. Um, and they all need attention and they all need a solution. Um, uh, what really drives me, I guess, is that I, to my core, I, I really believe that on some level, we are all sort of responsible for another. And I believe I have an obligation to help um, when and where I can. Well, that's oh, great. Sorry. 
it's great that you've been in, you know, that you've absorbed that, I'm sure, from 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 your home and your community to be able to be given over to others in such a way. Um, you, you say that, you know, there's people who need you in, in, in such a desperate way. Um, is most of your communication with them, um, let's say even in the normal times, is it is it actually physically there one on one or talking to them on the telephone or being connected to them through computer? How do you usually what's your usual method of, of connectivity? So Zoom is definitely our friend, certainly during COVID. Um, we um, serve people in every state. We're a national organization. And so um, you know, I happen to live outside of Washington, D.C., and my clients live all over the country. Um, we do Zoom, a lot of telephone contact, a lot of um, email uh, for the clients that don't have access to email or, you know, some can't read, some, you know, their people might not speak English, people have basic literacy uh, issues, things like that. Um, we, we, we just find a way, we find a way. So, so it sounds, from your answer, it, it would seem that that most of your contact is actually, you actually aren't going to those halfway houses or, or meeting them. Most of them know you only as a person, either the best case scenario through Zoom, right? It, it, well, these days because of COVID and all of that, but for example, I, you know, Rabbi Shaman goes to all of the prisons in Illinois. They, he, they still do all of those things. Um, so we, it's half and half. It's there's when we can be uh, in person, we are. Um, and and um, when we can't be, we find a way to make to connect uh, on you know the the most real level that we can. I think that's. I... So we also do uh, visits in person, or people come to us. We meet them, and uh, whether that's families or people reentering. And then we have personal relationships. But I think the phone relationships and the Zoom are even more effective because they're also uh, finding resources and resources you find online. And so you're saying, to, again, we've all tried to process what COVID has done and how it's changed us. And many people have, have said that uh, the introduction of Zoom, the introduction of this type of teleconferencing uh, has not only highlighted its effectiveness, but has also granted skills to people who didn't have them before and uh, accentuated some of their strengths. So you're saying that the fact that you have to connect Dana with some of these people on Zoom has also helped them, has forced them in a way to become uh, savvy of how to use technology. Uh, I think that's what 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 the Rebbe and Shaman was was trying to emphasize. Um, but uh, let's just put one last question on that on, on this on, on this issue. And I think we can all relate to it. I, as a teacher, uh, many times think about the difference between a classroom setting and a Zoom setting, and the difference between involvement. Did you do you find, however, that there's still if we get back to it, or if there are people close to where you are living, that there's still something about being physically with the person in the room, being able to talk to them across a table and, and be able to be more cognizant of body language that allows you to make a, a, a connection to really know what they need more than, okay, I'm in front of the camera and, you know, I'm, I sort of have, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always in close up as opposed to being able to be physically with them and to sort of read a total situation. Uh, am I getting the point across, Dana, the question? Yeah, so I mainly and and um, so mainly my work is there's there isn't much counseling. So I think for counseling, that can be probably very different. But I'm mainly a crisis worker. So I get cases that are very layered, very complicated dangerous there are emergencies those things require somebody who can move a thousand miles a second and find a million resources you know in three hours <laughs> so for that you don't need to be in the room with the person the counseling that comes after i, I would imagine um, that could be 
uh, important, but I, I mean, even, you know, COVID has changed everything. When I go to my doctor, I do it on Zoom. I mean, sure. I, I understand. And you're saying that, um, you know, and I'm sure there, and I know that uh, Rabbitson knows, and I know that they, there is a lot of involvement personally when you can. Um, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, is there a contrast that you're finding? I know the population is skewed towards more male offenders than female offenders in the United States. I don't know what the numbers are. I think of the 2 million incarcerated people, I'm not sure what the percentages of females. I think I looked it up a couple of weeks ago when we did a program about it. But uh, can you contrast the, the difference between working with persons, males or females? Is there a difference that you're finding in terms of, of your effectiveness or how it's going there? Not in terms of my effectiveness, I don't believe. And when I say my effectiveness, it's it's really is the the Henda family as a whole, the the entire foundation and and other agencies that we partner with. Not one, no one person can can do everything. Um, you know, we welcome all genders. Um, however, the client might identify at Henda, um, and we're here to help every human every child of every child of god um, with 100 percent acceptance and zero judgment and i i think i work from that intention i sometimes don't notice um there are things of course like um you know when there's domestic violence involved or a history of that there it tends to be uh, a female client um but not always. And there are male clients who have experienced domestic violence that no one talks about. So there, it, it, um, I don't know about it. I think we're effective. Crisis caseworkers are effective no matter what. I think it's blind uh, giving. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was just imagining that you know, there might be uh, people who find it easier to unburden to a female caseworker as opposed, and or my, like you said, a, a woman who herself says, well, maybe you understand what that is. And, and, and the reticence, there might be a reticence on the part of, uh, of a person, uh, of a male person who might find it for some reason, especially if he's had issues before um, dealing with, uh, and again, we, we know there's a lot of psychological stuff that goes on and there's a lot of, um, uh, I'm sure, I don't know if I have the right psychological term, but you sometimes start uh, in your mind, seeing people as representatives of the people that you were involved with in a negative way. And if the person had had negative interactions with women in the past, it might be a, a, a caseworker like yourself, a woman might have problems with that person because of that, uh, especially if so, there's other, other mental illness involved. So one thing that I personally think we do an excellent job of and and when she says that we lives are saved that is um she's she's being kind many lives are saved one thing that we do really well at Henda is work together we know what our strengths are we know what they aren't I'm not I'm not the best you know counselor in the whole wide world we have somebody else who is excellent at it we know when to share cases and pass things around and meet so that we meet the, the need of the entire human being. So, um, you know, if, if there's a woman who's been abused or has domestic violence and doesn't want to, you know, she wants a woman, then they come, of course, then that's me. There could be a guy who's, you know, on the registry, for example, and um, is embarrassed to talk to me about his case. Even if I'm the best one to help him in his crisis situation, he might want to talk to a male, possibly one who's been down that road. So, we just are very fluid with okay. our communication and, and um, we do what is best, best serves the client, whatever that looks like. You can't be, ter- you can't be territorial in any way uh, in terms of, yeah, that was my client, et cetera. No. It's, always, it's always have to look at the big, you know, you, you, we mentioned before about the parole officers and um, in a conversation that I, I had with Rebbitz and Scheinman in a different context, we talked about that there are parole officers and there are parole officers. Um, some of them, you know, it's again, whenever there's, there's going to be a, a big variance in how effective and how empathetic they are. Um, in, in your work, um, how do you try to work in concert with those parole officers in a way that doesn't create friction between you and them and the client? Well, so that's a loaded question, but I'm going to make it, keep it very short. Um, 
So I understand fully going in that they are in control. They are in charge. There's very, there's no wiggle room about that. Um, and I mainly say, I need your help. I want to make a relationship with you. And um, I want to, um, what can I, how can I help you help me so that I can help my client? Because I, my job is to give him or her the very best possible chance at a successful reentry. Um, and, uh, and sometimes beg, I'm not, <laughs> I'll say, but just really saying like, I need your help. Can, how can I help you help me? And it is, I've been overwhelmed with like how many times officers tell me you, we make their job easier actually, because they don't have to worry and find a place to live and find all this stuff. Not that they do it anyway. Most of them don't, but let's just say you get one that really goes the extra mile. They don't have to do it because they know we're going to do it. They know I'm going to call a hundred times. I'm going to beg a hundred times. And they just eventually, we have amazing relationships with parole and um, probation. Uh, some of them call me every week. They text me in, at nighttime about this or that, if they have a concern. And it really offers our client um, an extra layer of, um, there's nothing worse than coming out of prison uh, with nothing and nobody. Um, nothing. You're, you, you couldn't probably be more vulnerable than that on some level. And so when they know there's an advocate behind them, they know there's an agency behind them, a foundation where they can get many, many services, religious and otherwise, uh, spiritual and otherwise, um, they're, they're a little safer because people aren't so quick to discard them, so to speak, um, because they know somebody's looking out for them and they're going to, I'm going to call if you, if, my client's not getting what he needs. So, so, so it, sounds, it sounds like one of the things that is important is not to be obsequious, but to, in some ways, own up and, and, and let the parole officer know that you're not trying to muscle in on their territory or trying to uh, advise in a different way than they would. Uh, because I think what you said is, is, is important for all our listeners to know that the pro officer has sort of like a godlike power sometimes over these prisoners, former prisoners. And if the pro officer's the sense of things is that it's going awry, that somehow they're doing the wrong thing or, or they've done, uh, they violated. It's almost just like, you know, we, we had a couple of weeks ago a discussion with a criminal defense lawyer who said the judges are given uh, this incredible power to uh, to mete out sentencing, which isn't sometimes logical. I would assume that what you're saying, the parole officer also sort of has this sort of power to be able to determine, no, oh, that was a violation. This guy's going to have to go back. This is a strike against you. So I, I guess it's very important for you to know the parole officers of each person you're dealing with and to at least connect to them and let them know that that um you're the, like you say let me know what it is to help them but yeah uh, they, they 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 have my cell phone they know they can call me at night they know i'm a, i make myself available to them um because you would hope that you both have the same goal in mind which is a successful re-entry uh but you you know you they they do control everything and and you do want to um have a good solid relationship with them and, and even, and be very proactive. I mean, I call, I have one client, I call his probation and I said, Hey, he's not allowed to have internet. So we, I said, look, we got a game boy for him. Cause he's, you know, bored out of his mind. It's not connected to the internet. It's not this, it's, you know, 20 years old, but just so you know, we're being trans transparent. And if you go search, just know that it's not connected to the internet. They love that. They appreciate it. They respect us for it and um and it and it really makes such a difference in the live and experience of that particular client mm -hmm. um the, here, this is a question which um you know i'm not sure if it has uh a, a you know a straightforward answer but you know i think it's important to ask um one of the things that you know robertson shyman spoke about about uh, a person who's now empty on the street with nothing um, and trying to rebuild their lives. One of the key abilities we have in rebuilding our lives 
is getting up from failure and determination and believing that you can make choices on your own. Um, even if you sometimes those choices don't work out exactly, but you feel that you are writing your own story or you're definitely not just a minor character in someone else's story. Um, you know, today, we call that uh, giving people a sense of their own agency. Um, now, we know with our children <laughs> and our students that we sometimes see them doing things that because of our knowledge and life experience, we believe is probably not going to work out. But yet we stop and we don't say anything because we want them to discover their life on their own and discover what their choices mean. If we constantly subvert or redirect, then they might get the desired um, uh, result for that time, for that month, for that year. But when we're not around, they won't be able to make those decisions. So I would say even for yourself, you're sort of like, you know, in, in that role somewhat. Um, uh, do you believe that, like many people do today, that generating agency and self-determination in your clients counts more than the quality of the choices they make? And sometimes you do you sometimes feel, hmm, I'm not sure if that job is going to work out for you. It doesn't seem to be your skill set. But that's what you feel you're driven towards uh, to work on, you know, you know, at that hot dog stand or whatever it is, I would have probably picked something else. But since that's what you want, do you find yourself saying, well, okay, or to yourself, I'm going to not say anything and, and let them at least feel that that was a choice they made. Okay. What would you answer to that, Dana? So I would say, you know, free agency, we all have, um, self-determination is something different. I feel like it's something that has to be sort of learned and nurtured and built. Um, we don't all come with self-determination because we don't all come with self-worth or if we did, it was, you know, there are childhood trauma, there's abuse, childhood abuse, you know, it's beaten out of you or who knows. Um, but definitely you want the client to understand that they have choices um, and, and that they have power, that they have, they have power and, uh, agency over their own life to, to, with limitations. Sometimes you're not defined by, um, the last choice you made. Uh, I don't believe, um, I think your consequences and your circumstances might make it seem that way, but I believe, um, we're all more than the choices we've made. That's why grace and forgiveness are so important for us all. Uh, but I, I do think it's really important for, even if you have nothing and you feel like you have nobody and you have nothing, you don't, you have the sky, you have the air on your face, you have the wind, you, you build, you start with the dirt under their feet and you remind them they have this, they have this, they have this and, and think positive and here's what you can do here's what you can do you can do this because it you know it's easy to get down when you have 20 different limitations no internet no nothing no this no that um and they need to know that they have power that they can make a choice they can go to the bank they can get on a bus and go get a job they can it might not be the job they want but they can get one these sorts of things, and you can get a GED, you can, uh, what you can do, and, and that they have power, and, and it's important. Um, and and, and, and do, you, ben, do you find yourself sometimes biting your tongue and saying, mm, I wouldn't have made that one, but I'm going to let them, like I was saying, sort of like a parent go on? Do you, do you ever find that happening? Sure, sure. I mean, I have a, a one client who works at a convenience store. He's brilliant. He you know, he's, he has limitations, severe limitations from probation, but I work really closely with probation and we we're trying to find him something else, but he's perfectly happy. He says working there. So it's not what I would choose for him. He had, but he's also, you know, there's a recovery time you come out and you haven't seen the sky in and perhaps 25 years, you haven't felt the wind on your face. You haven't moved more than 10 feet at a time for 20 years. So they, it takes time and no, no one case is, uh, every case is individual. Yep. 
Now, Dana, you know, obviously we could probably go on for a long time. It sounds like you are extremely busy and I don't need, I don't want to take you away from, from your work because I know that you, you, you're going to have to uh, shift off and, and, and help some other person. But I, I think what uh, would be interesting and I think crucial for people to know uh, is some of the great successes um, that you've been able with God's help and with Hinda's help uh, helping them uh, to be able to accomplish in, in in this field that you've that you've chosen. So why don't you tell us, you know, give us some little, you know, uh, an example of something like that. So I guess a good example would be I have one client who uh, went to prison in Key West. Um, he um, it was a um, he's on the sexual registry. Um, it, it, it was that sort of case. He, um, and so when he came out, he, he came out with many, many, many restrictions, of course, uh, no internet, uh, that alone is crippling, uh, but no internet, no nothing. Um, he uh, didn't have a place to live, didn't have, we didn't know if he had any money, he didn't have any shoes, he didn't have, um, he had nothing. And so the probation officer, this is another example of why it's so important to work with probation really well, um, he, he had a probation officer in Key West who I worked really closely with for many, many days, a few weeks actually before his release. Um, he, because of his charge, he wasn't allowed to go to a homeless shelter. So basically what happens to, uh, sex offenders, uh, um, alleged sex offenders in, in that area of the country is they live in the mangroves or the woods, um, uh, some, Sometimes they don't have a tent. Sometimes they don't have shoes. They're not allowed to be anywhere because there are children or daycares, whatever. Um, we were able to work really closely with um, his agent in in uh, Key West, and um, he needed a lot of things. We had to find him housing. Nobody wanted to take him because he's on the registry. It was smack in the middle of Passover. So we there was no assistance really whatsoever. We really had to do it ourselves. Um, we couldn't find anything. We found something in Orlando. We had to get him that we had to do something that's called um, inter-county uh, compact travel. You can't leave the county that you're on probation in. So he had, we needed permission for that. We needed Orlando uh, is where we found a housing for him. They have to accept him. They don't have to take him. So we had to do that. So now I'm dealing with two probation officers. Uh, he had to, he has two hours. Once he walks out the door of the prison, he has to register with the DMV. He has to register with the sheriff's office. He has to register with probation. He then, we found transportation for him to get to Orlando, which is hours and hours away on the other end, up in the middle of Florida. Um, found the housing, got him into the housing, got him registered there because now it's another county. So now you have another probation, another DMV, another sheriff, another everything else. Um, um, and, and then the parole officer is working back and forth. He now jumped forward uh, and it, it was a very, very scary uh, emergency and a hard, hard time for him uh, and his entire family, uh, who, by the way, he was estranged uh, from for 20 years before this happened. Uh, jump forward. He now has a full-time job. He pays his own rent. He lives in his own apartment. He um, uh is um, working on his health care. He is in counseling. He um, is rebuilding his relationship with his family little by little, you know, slowly but surely. 20 years is a long time to be estranged, but he he's okay and he's going to be okay. And he knows that he has the Hinda family behind him and other agencies that we partner with. And it could have really gone a really different way because when you're living in the woods in Key West, you could look to your left, look to your right, and you're violated. And then depending on how much probation you have over your head, if you have five years over your head, they can just say, we don't want to be bothered with you. You're one less person in the woods. We're putting you back in jail for five years. I mean, so it really is um, an incredible, uh, heart-wrenching story, that one, a success one. And I, I'm grateful and humbled to have been able to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> It, it sounds like you were able to get this done in somewhat of a, I mean, um, Reverend Scheinman said you've only started working in January. Was this something from a previous uh, organization or you were able to get this done in just a couple of months? 
Sounds like we, we had three days to get that done. Wow. <laughs> all, all of that happened in three days. Wow. That's, that's a lot of pressure. Um, well, again, we want to, yeah, it's been a, a schuss, really, as we say, it's been our merit and our, uh, our honor to be able to speak to someone who is so involved in, in, in saving lives in such a way. Um, and I think that we have to really understand that. And that's part of what our program is trying to do is really looking at people as human beings and understanding that what we're doing is actually uh, saving lives and making society better. Evanson, do you want to um, uh, comment on this? Well, our job is to empower people to make choices, but we need to remember that if somebody comes out traumatized, you know, if someone's in a hospital, we don't say under surgery, you make a choice. We need to be there to support them at that critical stage. Then we bring them to the place where they rebuild their lives. If there's no support at the beginning, if we're not there to help with housing, with employment, then, then they really can't make it. They don't have the resources to make it. So we empower them and we give them like a scaffold, crutches so that they can walk. And that's how the caseworkers make a difference. In five years from now, he'll be in a different place. Rabbi, just quickly, one sentence, just, I think it's so important. We meet them where they are, wherever that is, wherever it is, however lonely, however terrible, however distraught, we meet them where they are and, and we work yeah. for them. Yeah. Right. And, and propel and, them and, upwards. We yeah. meet them where they are. And in five years from now, they are in a different place. Yeah. That's why we have a miraculous recidivism rate because we are with our clients for life. We don't just give them a little service and leave them. We stay with them. Okay. Um, again, it's very, like we say, uh, hopefully uh, we say, there should be more. And not only be Israel, but really as a model for, uh, for all uh, sort of social service agencies. I, I think one of the things that, you know, I, I know Dana and Robertson, if you agree with me, um, one of the things that I think we have to realize is that people believe that the more religious a country is or the more involved in religion a country is, the less tolerant it is. I think that what we have discovered with Hinda and others that religious organizations are, an, are, are a tremendous um, a resource because they are driven by a spiritual calling and they can work in tandem with the government's agencies and with the state agencies. And really, the, the increase in, in, in religious sensitivity and, the, and, and to care for other human beings, not just from a legalistic sense of what the Constitution demands, but from a sense of honoring the image of God that's within everyone, I think is what, gravita is what gives, gravitates young people and other people like, our, not myself, but Dana and others, towards this towards these these roles in society and uh i think that the places that 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 have uh this sort of religious backing and this feeling i think they they need to be tapped in order to bring them into the conversation and in order to to help provide the support the government the government is, is here to manage and to hopefully make things work but when you're talking about the cement and the glue the spit and the chewing gum uh, the love and the frustration that comes from uh, the motivation of serving a higher cause than yourself. So, so uh, I am here with uh, someone that was with us a number of weeks ago, a retired uh, police captain from the New York City Police Force, uh, Daniel uh, Sosnovic. Uh, who has agreed to join us here, especially as uh, our usual compatriot in these discussions, Rabbi Yitzchak Kolokowski, is unavailable. I know, Dan, um, issues of criminal defense and, in general, criminal justice, um, especially as it affects uh, the interplay between society at large and the official, the, the police. This is something that you've lived with. It's something that you've thought a lot about. You've listened to uh, the interview that uh, Dana uh, gave to me, um, and um, I wanted to get your thoughts about it. Um, I know, I think let's just start off and say we both 
feel that what Dana is doing is something laudable, something that needs to be highlighted, and people should know about that great work that they're doing. But I think you had a couple of points that you wanted to respond to. Absolutely. Um, I, I would agree that the, uh, the reintegration process for many of these, uh, of these convict, convicted individuals, I think that's a very important process. I think it's a noteworthy that uh, the work that they're doing, I commend them for it. I think reintegration in, uh, in a properly supported environment is probably something that would help uh, these these individuals prevent themselves and uh, assist them in in uh, not falling back into a recidivist mindset. So, I mean, I do that. De- I definitely give them a lot of credit. The only question I would have in terms of most of these reintegra- reintegration programs is whether or not there's any value in uh, training training the individuals how to appropriately perceive both their parole officers as well as law enforcement. I think on the one hand, from parole perspective, I think it's important for, you know, individuals to have a, an abiding mindset, a law-abiding mindset. So I think one of the problems that exists behind bars is that you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, education that's going in the wrong direction. And I think that once a person gets out uh, into back into society, I am, I would be a little bit concerned that they have, they have some misperceptions about how society functions only because they've been, they've been on the other side for however long that they've been there. So, so in other words, I, I just to put it into straight terms, Inside, behind closed doors, there is a um, sort of a, there is a rule of the uh, of the convict, and and they see the COs as the enemy. They see the COs as someone you can't trust, and they that mindset has developed so strongly among them. I think that's what you're trying to say. That now that they have been released, they need to realize that the parole officer, although he is a, an extension of that same system, can't be viewed in the same sort of adversarial way that they might have viewed the COs. Is that what you were trying to say? Or did I? I, I, definitely, I definitely would say that that's part of it, although I would go a little bit further. And I would say that there has been, amp, there's ample evidence that a lot of the criminal skill sets are learned behind bars. So it's not just that, you know, they, they view things in a certain way. It's that if you hang out with the wrong crowd and admittedly behind bars is usually a very large percentage of a tough crowd, you may actually pick up, you know, skills that you might think are appropriate in a law abiding society, but unfortunately they are not. So I, I would just ask, I would ask the Hindu representatives whether or not you know, they are engaged in trying to reintegrate as well in terms of law-abiding citizenry. I think that would be a valuable uh, step. And again, I, I, I have no problem with reintegration and the concept that people have done their time. But, you know, my biggest concern, and I don't think, you know, we hear this enough, is that, remember, these people are not just accused. I mean, there was a there was one point where Dana mentioned something about an alleged perpetrator. It's not alleged anymore. You've been convicted or you pled guilty and you've been confined for a defined period of time. So we're no longer dealing with alleged. We're dealing with people have committed some type of some type of a crime and they've gone away and now they're back. So I think there has to be a certain realistic perception that, you know, there's a lot of psychological or perhaps educational perspectives that need to be employed to help these people reintegrate and hopefully help them lead a law-abiding life. That would be the biggest concern. Now, we talked a little bit about parole. Obviously, that extends to involvement with law enforcement. In many cases, parolees uh, are are mandated to report any involvement with law enforcement. So I think that's a big concern for them because I think they immediately view that 
such a report is going to be viewed prejudicially against them. So in other and, words, let's say they jaywalk in Newark, where you could get ticketed uh, over there. I've seen it happen. <laughs> um, and or let's say they're they are. I don't know if they're able to get a driver's license, but possibly um, they might have some sort of issue in a in a in a in a vehicular situation where they have violated. A, they've done a wrong turn or something's wrong with the car that they're driving. So they might once again <laughs> meet up. And, and, I, and I used actually two very parva examples of meeting up with the with the police again. But but even those power of examples, are, of course, are just the tip of the iceberg. Probably in the places where they're going and the friends they had, there's probably numerous opportunities for them to step on the wrong side. And once again, they might find themselves uh, uh, with a police officer in their face. Right. So I mean, exactly. And the truth is, I, I was actually thinking about some of the more parved examples of interactions with law enforcement that. You know, just because, you know, we, you know, an interaction can be something as simple as, like you said, a vehicular traffic stop or something along those lines. I would just encourage everyone that if their parole mandates it, that you have to report it. In other words, remember, the, the best thing that any of us can do is just to follow the guidelines. So, again, if these are guidelines, even though there's, excuse me, even though there's going to be a tremendous amount of fear that, these types of interactions are going to be are going to prejudice their parole, but I think that nevertheless there has to be a constant a constant reeducation that but follow the guidelines. In other words, if it's just a traffic stop, in all likelihood, no one is going to violate your parole for that. However, if you have one or two such interactions and you don't report it, you might be violated because you're you're not following the rules, and then you can sort of see how in a person's mind that can cascade to other negative activities because, hey, I'm already behind the eight ball. I've got nothing to lose. And th those are my concerns. You know, you, but, you know, but again, that right. does not take away, I think, from the important work of reintegration. I think that's a very valid concept. I think it probably will help prevent recidivism. And the last time I was on, we talked about recidivists and there are certain crimes that are particularly prone to recidivism. So, I mean, I'm a big proponent of, of reintegrating. And I think Hinda Helps is doing a great job, as long as I think that they have that also the perspective of, you know, the need to, the need to assess uh, the mindset of their clients and whether or not they need some, uh, some help. You know, you know, I'm reminded when we're talking about the scenario of, the um, ex-con, so to speak, uh, you know, running into a policeman again. Um, and and he's not just running into him. The, the person has done something minor. But I'm, I'm reminded about what I hear, and I've heard from the African-American community. Um, I know uh, Stephen A. Smith and others have talked about this, about what they've taught their children to do, about um, if you are stopped by a police officer, um, you know, to actually uh, assume a very docile position, uh, to keep your hands on the wheel in a way that there isn't any suggestion that something else is going on. And even though it seems like this is um, behavior that's more demanding from an African-American than it would be, let's say, from a white uh, a, a teenager, but it's good common sense. We're, we, we're not going to change uh, the, this prejudice right away. And I think the same thing is probably might hold true here. You know, if this interaction occurs and the person uh, is able to give their ID and with a little bit of computer work, the policeman in their car, the patrolman in the car might be able to discover that this person is someone who has a record, who has been recently released. Maybe even someone who, like Dana was talking about, was on the registry or something like that. So I think there's there's also just the the uh, etiquette that they need to be careful that that shouldn't because that, that the the same way and again whether it exists of white versus black or not again I'm not getting into that but I think you'd agree with me that there is a certain prejudice that might arise when the patrolman discovers that this person is not as fresh as the driven snow, 
that this person has been has served a number of years and is just recently out. So I think it's probably important to have the most respectful attitude possible, because you know uh, I, I I know that you worked you are a policeman and, and you have been one. Would you say that that makes sense as well? My my impression is more along the lines that unless you are already creating suspicion around yourself, my, my, my experience is more like the police really don't, you know, they don't have a problem with what, what you've done in your past. They have a, you know, they are more interested in what you're doing in your present. So, I mean, I don't know that, you know, you know the example you gave about, you know, uh, keeping your hands on the steering wheel, uh, I don't get pulled over much, but I do that. Because again, I have to assume that the police officer has no clue who he stopped and he doesn't. And he needs to know that he's safe from any threats, even if it's from me. So I have no right to assume that the police officer knows that I'm not a threat to him just because I'm an older white guy. That doesn't, I mean, that doesn't yeah. resound, that doesn't really resound with me because yeah. the bottom line is that they're really stopping an unknown car and they do this all the time and they have no clue who they're encountering right so I mean, that's that's just good advice for everyone and i think that you know of late and i mean in the last few years or perhaps even a decade or more where there's a lot of discussion and I, a lot of it started from the current mayor of new york city that you know they have to have these conversations with their children i think that this is not a conversation. This, excuse me, this is not necessarily a conversation for just certain groups. This is a conversation to have with all your kids. That, in other words, you have to be respectful because essentially we've empowered law enforcement to be the authority. And if they, if you are driving a car, in all likelihood, they have every authority to stop you. And again, you just deal with it as it comes. And, you know, that, that's the best approach for all of us. So, I mean, my impression by getting back to our, to our person who is reentering, I, I really don't know that the police officers are that, are that prejudiced against you if you are doing, if you are just going about your business. Uh, I think it's much more an issue if you are in the wrong place at the wrong oh. time. But let, let, you know, again, I, I think part of the hands on the wheel is, as the Sefer Chinuch always says, that your physical actions will always influence your mental state as well. I think part of it is, is, to, is to not view the policeman as this adversary who's going to hurt you, but actually to, to recognize the power that they yield and submit in a, in a passive way where again, things aren't going to, 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 to move in the wrong direction. And I'm worried, and maybe I'm totally off base on this, uh, Captain, but, you know, I, the, the same way Dana described, you know, some of the, the persons that, that, that were coming there and the, what they had been through and what they were struggling with, I almost feel that someone who is, the, you know, the same way, you know, our dog is microchipped. Uh, we hope we don't lose her. But if she does get lost, people are going to be able to tell, oh, this is owned by someone. This is not just a stray dog that we're going to send to the pound. This is someone who has an owner who loves her and cares enough for her to put this chip in. I think maybe, I don't know, if we, I'm not talking about microchipping uh, people who are coming out of prison, but maybe there'd be some way that when uh, the, uh, law enforcement uh, re interacts with the people who are in the middle between prison and between completely uh, integrated, that there's a, a sense of fragility of where they are. And maybe if they know that, the policemen would know that, then they would recognize who they were dealing with. Um, I, I think knowledge is power and positive power. So I guess what I'm saying is, I, from Dana's story and from what, I, the, what I've been reading about, I almost feel that, that this is, they're in such a delicate state that the, the law enforcement should also be aware of that. I know there's maybe privacy issues involved, but since the, 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 uh, 
the probability of them interacting again. You know, you heard about places where these halfway homes are and the type of area it is, the type of people that the person would gravitate towards. Maybe it's important for the police to know that and, and, and for them to realize that I, if there's a way for that to happen. Uh, do you think that that's, is that, is that a science fiction dream? My impression based on how I understood your question is that that's, that is a general training issue in regards to interacting with people across the spectrum, which I think most law enforcement agencies employ. So, I mean, remember when we say fragile, if uh, we, we also, when I say we, meaning the police department, they don't know, or your average police officer, they don't know that you just had a horrible day. And I don't know, somebody, you know, somebody just had a breakup of a, of a close relationship and he had a miserable day at work and now he's driving. And next thing you know, you're getting pulled over. So you could also refer to that person as fragile. So I'm saying that the idea of fragile, I think, you know, police officers are empowered to enforce the law, but they are also trained and they should certainly uphold that training by treating everyone respectfully. So, I mean, it's a give and take that our society has. And, you know, that does fray around the edges at times. I think, you know, in the past year, certainly in the, in the, uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd, I think we saw a lot of the fraying from uh, a lot of the uh, anarchist groups that decided that they were going to actually be quite violent against the police. But I think, it, you know, in all fairness, does it phrase sometimes with police officers being less than professional? Of course. I mean, not every, not every apple in the bunch is going to be pristine. But I don't know that this is a special, this is a special need vis-a-vis -vis this particular group. Again, I think that I mean, my experience tells me that if you're not in the wrong place at the wrong time, the police officers really are not that interested in your, in your involvement in the past. In other words, if you've gotten out and, you know, and many people that we interact with, especially in some of these communities, they have been in, but that is not necessarily even a strike against you. It's just really what's going on at present. The police officers are really involved so much more in the present than they are in the past. And the only exception to that would be, you know, recidivist type issues, which I brought up the last time we spoke. And, and I think that it's important to recognize that even if, say, a person is a recidivist, okay, so the police officers have, have common law rights of inquiry. So if, in fact, they might try and you know, try and touch base with such individuals, but it's really only under a common law right of inquiry, and it should be taken as such. But uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, my sense is that your your question is is really a general question about police training and and social social interactions amongst police right. and the people that they serve. Yeah, you know, I think you know. Without obviously, I'm not going to take um, a, a dramatic side here. I think. Most people who've listened to our program know where I, I stand on this. Um, but I think in the calls that you hear about defunding the police, you hear that there should be money um, uh, given to more uh, psychological training, more social workers, and things like that. Um, I think that, you know, I, I couldn't help but feeling or, or thinking, actually, that when we saw, we heard of Dana's story, we heard the, the, the pride that she has of the agency she works in, uh, the you know uh, Rebetzin Shimon, who she works under, and Rabbi Shimon himself, who provides the vision and, and the impetus. Um, you know, I, I was thinking, hmm, you know, if 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 our our tax dollars would go because they they have to go raise money, they have to go on programs and 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 do videos and come on podcast programs to get people to know about what they're doing. Um, and, and, and when we talk about funding in another area, and again, I, I sort of wonder, maybe some funds could go more into uh, having caseworkers uh, who um, are able to do this. Uh, again, I, I'm sort of, in, of of two minds, because on one hand, as I said at the end of the interview, 
I, I think that a religious perspective, which is antithetical to your typical American society, um, is what's necessary to go that extra mile. I wouldn't want it to become just another white collar, you know, government job where you know they're just checking boxes. Um, but but I think there is something to be said by you know, the, the, us understanding that it's it's a partnership, definitely. But there is a need for more compassion, more understanding, uh, more that type of selfless case worker uh, uh, sort of involvement. I don't know if throwing it onto the government makes any sense, um, but maybe there should be easier ways, grants for these religious organizations uh, to perhaps you know, be able to, to function in a way where uh, they can actually thrive. And I threw a lot out there, but uh, do you have a response to that? I, I certainly think that what you're bringing up needs to be needs to be looked at in the entire gamut of social services that we offer to, you know, to the underprivileged and to the underserved. So, I mean, I, I view that as certainly a a fruitful way of looking at things. And again, if there is funding that can be can be uh, directed towards some aspect of that. I totally, I think that that would be valuable, just like I think that, you know, certain funding for, um, you know, family units and, you know, and, and promotion of, uh, of, you know, good values amongst children. I think all those are very laudable goals. And I think that, you know, the more successful they are, the less problems law enforcement has down the road. So I, I think that society is aware that you, we're not going to incarcerate our way out of, you know, out of the criminal issues that we have. But on the other hand, there are limited funds. So the question is, where can we direct? So, you know, again, we've witnessed over the last year that there was a brainstorm about defunding the police. How, how that went, I think we all know. So it's like that probably wasn't the way to go. But on the other hand, you know, I certainly, you know, I, I might be, you know, perhaps one of uh, a lesser, a lesser minority in the police department. You know, I believe that some of the social services are valuable. So, I mean, I think that that's definitely so something that we as a society need to look at. And I think, you know, we discussed that to a certain degree. And I think Inda Helps is such is one such uh, agency that, you know, does does a valuable service. Right. But when, when, you know, when we can only slice the dollar so thin, you know, it, it remains it remains a question where we can put these services. Well, you know, in the rabbinic world, which I'm sort of familiar with in the Jewish Community Society, which I know you also are familiar with, when when they start putting their brains together and thinking about how they could allocate more to certain places, I think what 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 I've heard has been happening and I don't know if this is true in the police force. I'm sure it's a matter of public record, but that there are these there there are these huge big salaries <laughs> of certain people that m might have positions that can be um, uh, eliminated or at least merged. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm not. I don't even the idea of taking uh, the patrolman away. I don't think the African American community wants that at all. They want their areas patrol. They want to make sure that the police are visible and around. The police want to make sure they're safe. But maybe there's some of that schmaltz that could be gotten out. Now, again, I know this is your old friends and the people you were connected to. Is it possible? I know that in Jersey, I'm going to talk about Jersey. New Jersey, and both of us live in New Jersey now. I don't know what your taxes are, but my taxes are through the roof. And I know why. Because part of it is because Every single, you know, New Jersey has as many cities as Texas, I think, or it's number two to Texas, the amount of cities New Jersey has. There are so many uh, uh, little municipalities with their own police force and fire department and, and et cetera. Okay, but there's also probably jobs that you know, we could look at and probably do a, a better job of streamlining and deciding which ones are generating the type of wasted dollars that we could probably throw at agencies like Hinda or to do stuff like Hinda. Um, 
again, I, I don't want you to, 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 to be disloyal to, 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 to the, the place that, that supported you, but would you say that I'm, I'm onto something or not? That's a, that's a government is the most wasteful of all the entities out there. So, I mean, you're not going to get any argument from me on that because it's not a matter of disloyalty. It's just a matter of unfortunate, unfortunately poor management. And I've seen that throughout a very long law enforcement career. Poor, I mean, and that was one of the things that actually I was involved in. I was involved in management training in the police academy. So that's one of the things that, you know, we always tried to tackle is the idea of better management. And, right. you know, that's one of the things. And of course, then you have your insidious corruption, which is involving, you know, positions that probably aren't really merited and promotions that are done for nepotism reasons and others. So, I mean, I, I, you're not going to get any argument from me on that. In other words, if you, you shake the government tree and there'll be money coming out from all ends. So th so, that's I mean, what I mean. So, so I, I that's totally what, agree with you. I totally agree with. So that's you. why I think sometimes the defund the police. I'm not a BLM person at, at all. In fact, I, you know, it, it, I, I, it, it bothers me so much that that you know they have now become the arbiters and the symbols of social justice. I'm, believe me. However, I think that we have to hear what defund the police means. It doesn't mean necessarily less people like patrolmen that are out there and doing the great job of connecting to the community and, and, and caring for the community. But it might be, uh, there might be ways that we can think about uh, to do stuff in a way that's the most positive. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for, uh, for responding. I know that. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 